You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Well, good morning, church family. I'm Joe Thigpen. I'm your discipleship pastor, and this morning we're continuing our plan that we're going to work through this year, every book of the Bible offering you overview sermons of each book. We're in Deuteronomy this morning, and last week Dean did some heavy lifting and preached two, two books in one sermon. I covered Leviticus and Numbers, and of course the weeks before that we covered Genesis and Exodus together. So before we dive in, let's would you join me in prayer? Father, what we know not teach us, what we are not make us, what we know not teach us, and what we have not give us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. History is bunk. Well, so said Henry Ford anyway. I wonder what it is that you make of history. Some of you, no doubt, have a favorite period, author, or figure, or other niche interests. Others of you may think of the classes that you slept through, or perhaps you do echo Ford's sentiment that history is bunk after all. What, what does history, what does the past have to teach us? Well, to make matters a little bit more complex, what do you make of God's activity in history? Can we discern his patterns? Can we make sense of his plans? Does the Bible address this? Well, I'm glad you asked. As we've studied the first four books of the Bible, God is orchestrating history so that his people may know him. Deuteronomy continues this narrative as Moses interprets the law for a new generation of Israelites poised to take possession of the land. All five of these books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, were referred to as the law or also the books of Moses. And they served as the foundation for Israel's relationship with God. It doesn't take long reading Deuteronomy to see its significance. There are many well-known passages and, of course, some surprising ones. The Ten Commandments are again restated in chapter 5, the Shema, which we'll look at in chapter 6. Of course, that famous passage of the secret things belonging to the Lord in chapter 29. And Israel's future kings were instructed to make a copy of all the law, all the books of Moses in chapter 17. And that's where Deuteronomy gets its name, simply the second law. Deuteronomy also is the book that Jesus references most in his ministry. And this book can be quite easily divided into three sections according to the final three addresses of Moses. The first is a historical prologue which interprets most of the book of Numbers and all the events that happened in it. The second is the longest and it's an exposition of God's commands and statutes to his people. And then the final looks to the future and provides a concluding charge to God's people. As I thought about preaching this sermon, I considered working through each of those three sections. It would have made for a pretty clear sermon outline. Those of you that like sermon outlines, no doubt, would have been well served. and It would have been a clear, logical progression. But I'm afraid doing so would have had us miss some of the greater themes and nuances of the book of Deuteronomy. You see, at the center of this book is God and his people. So our plan for this morning will trace what this book reveals, reveals about each under two major headings the true God, and his people. And if you don't get anything else this morning, here's the main idea for our time. God chooses a people to bear his name. God chooses a people to bear his name. So let's first, let's look at the God who chooses. What does this book reveal about him? 
those of you that are following along in our Bible reading plan have seen the primary questions we've been asking ourselves as we've been reading chapters of God's book. We've been asking, what does this passage or these passages reveal about God? And this is our first question to answer in our time this morning. This book has much to say. It's packed with answers to this question. Even when God is addressing his people through the law, it shows us much about him. However, a few things immediately stand out upon our reading. First, he is one. God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 says it like this, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here, God speaks to his people plainly. The passage is referred to, as we mentioned earlier, as the Shema, which is simply the Hebrew word for listen or hear in other translations. All Israel was to hear this word. They were to hear this word from their God. They were to memorize it, and it was to be central to their lives in worship. In it, God makes clear who he is. He's not divided. There are no gods that compete with him. He has no rival. He is holy. He is one. Second, he is known by his work. He is known by his work. Let's read Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 6 together. Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 6. Feel free to turn there. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances I am proclaiming as you hear them today. Learn and follow them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. He did not make this covenant with our ancestors, but with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face from the fire on the mountain. At that time, I was standing between the Lord and you to report to the word of the Lord to you because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. You see, God does not just tell his people what he wants them to know about them. He acts. He works in the world that he has created, and he moves history by his providence. He acted first to bring the people out of Egypt. He spoke to them from a cloud face to face. He does all that he pleases, and what he does, he does that so others may see and marvel at his wondrous works. And through his works, he alone is glorified. Two more points quickly about his work. So our third sub-point here, his work manifests his choice. His work manifests his choice. He has selected a people to be the object of his love. And of course, we may ask, why did God choose this people? Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9 provides the answer. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9. Moses is speaking to the people on behalf of God, and this is what he says. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord has his heart set on you and chose you, not because you are more numerous than all the peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. You see, God did not choose Israel because of anything in them or because of anything they did. God simply chose them because he loved them. 
His choice of his people cannot be questioned because his love on them is fixed. He does not change like the shifting shadows, as our brother James says in James 1.17. No, his love on his people is steady and specific. He keeps gracious covenant loyalty, as the passage we just read said, to a thousand generations. He chose them. He chose them because he loves them. And he will not waver. And he chose them for a purpose. For his, his work demonstrates his plan. His work demonstrates his plan. God chooses a people to love that they may love him in return. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, or forward. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. All that, all that God gives his people is to remind them to love him. Their lives are, be to, to direct, are to be directed to him and their worship, they are to worship him as he is. This is the aim of his commands. To love God as he wills. So throughout the book of Deuteronomy, this is of primary importance. Indeed, the most importance is a heart tuned for worship. And there will be a reoccurring theme throughout the rest of the Old Testament, not just this book. Here the Lord makes it clear to his people. He's interested in their heart, their main affection, their complete worship. See what Moses says about what God has been teaching his people throughout all they've been through together in Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 10. Let's read this together. Carefully follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter the land and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your ancestors. Remember that the Lord, your God, led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what is in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of our Lord. Your clothing did not wear out, and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. So keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams, springs, and deep water sources, flowing in both valleys and hills, a land of wheat, barley, vine, figs, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without shortage, where you will lack nothing, a land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you will mine copper. When you eat and are full, you will bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Like a faithful shepherd here, God has led his people through the wilderness and through their rebellion that they might learn to trust him, that they might readily inherit a land of, pl of plenty, that they may rest in God as his treasured people. He was training them, training them to trust him. Now a new generation of, Isra of Israelites was about to inherit the land. Moses was making sure that they see the hand of the Lord at work by remembering his plan. Don't you see the steady hand of the Lord in Israel's history? 
God, the only God, has led his people patiently out of slavery through the wilderness to a land of abundance that they may trust him. He has led them and revealed himself to them. He has chosen them to be the people he loves. Which brings us to our second major heading, the people God loves. As we've seen in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, his work is centering on a people. The people are marked here by three points. They all begin with C. Dean told me when I was preaching that I get points for alliteration, so there you go. Number one, they're calling. They're calling. God calls his people to be marked by love and obedience to him. In giving the law through Moses to his people, God lovingly defines how his people are to live. He gives them standards of obedience that it may go well with them in the land and continue in covenant relationship with him. Let's read Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul? Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I am giving you today for your own good. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord has his heart set on, you, on your ancestors and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality, taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien, since you are resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You are to fear the Lord your God and worship him. Remain faithful to him and take oaths in his name. He is your praise and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awe-inspiring works your eyes have seen. Your ancestors went down to Egypt, 70 people in all. And now the Lord your God has made you numerous like the stars of the sky. See, their call here was simply to remember and reflect God to the world. As the Lord cared for them, so too were they to care for others. Their knowledge of him was to motivate them in all their affairs. And his commands and statutes were given to them to help them carry out this calling by cultivating their character. Subpoint so two, their character. Their character. In all their affairs, again, God's people were to reflect God to the world. They were to bear his image both individually and collectively. As we saw in Deuteronomy 10, the character of God is building in his people. The character God is building in his people is directly related to who he is and how he works. He is mighty, so his people will be mighty. He is loving, he calls his people to be loving. He is generous, he calls his people to be generous. He is just, he calls his people to be just. You get the picture. Now, it is common in our day to read these laws as harsh, but something we must remember about these passages is that God is working and moving to call a people out in their time period. So before we consider any statutes as archaic, we must first account for its purpose as God designed it. His word and commands here are to be active in his people's lives. They were to be studied and taught, and all God's people were to do, they were to be mindful of him. As the book says, in their going out and in their coming in, in their labor and in their rest, they were to acknowledge him. And in acknowledging him, love him. And in loving him, point others to him. As they did this, he would fight for them. He would protect them. And he would deliver them. 
through them God's power and kindness were to be displayed to nations. Kings would bow down to them. Nations would come to them. They were to display the loving kindness of their God and his severity towards sin. Scholars note here that Moses' interpretation of the law falls into three categories. Worship, leadership, and life and community. Worship, leadership, life and community. And each of these God's people were to, to reflect his character to one another and to the world. Their worship was of first importance. God, again, wanted their heart to worship him based on his revelation. He defines it for them. They were not to speculate or build idols as the pagans did. They were to worship as God had defined it. He is their praise, and he lovingly defines how he is to be worshipped. What a grace this is. God tells his people how to worship him. They were to worship him in truth. That is to say, at the center of their worship was knowledge of God. This is unlike any other religion in the world. God speaks to his people after acting on them and rescuing them. And then he tells his people how to worship him. His people don't have to search. They don't have to fumble around. They don't have to stumble in darkness. He makes it plain for them. I would encourage you, if you are considering Christianity, that this would be a great thing to talk about with a friend over lunch. Jesus captured this when, in his dialogue with the Samaritan woman in John 4. John, John writes, Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Indeed, there's much that we could unpack here, but for our time together this morning, let's make this observation. From a heart oriented to worship of the only true God who revealed himself to them, the rest of the people's lives were to be ordered. From a heart oriented to worship to the true God, the rest of their life was to be ordered. Importantly, their leaders were to treasure the word of God and govern by its principles. Moses tells us of what kings must do when they take their throne. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It is to remain with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of its instruction, and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his his countrymen. He will not turn from this command to the right or to the left. And he and his sons will continue reigning many years in Israel. Of course, there were no copiers in this day and certainly no copy and pasting. The king must write a copy of the law for himself under the supervision of the, Levit- of the Levitical priests. He couldn't outsource or delegate this task. He alone must do it. And once the words are copied, what was he to do? He was to read it every day and observe its instruction. And we see what the Lord is concerned with here, even of his king, even of his leaders, that is his heart. That is that it may be humble and not exalted. God alone was to be exalted amongst his people. The king was to be God's servant. He was to rule righteously according to the word of the Lord. And also the judges in Israel were to judge with right judgment and show no partiality. Moses writes, they are to judge the people with with righteous judgment. Additionally, Israel's life together was to manifest the character of God. 
Time won't allow us to look at all the passages that show this, but what's clear is that in their obedience, they were to reflect God's love and character to one another and to the world. As we've seen, they were to be a people of worship and righteous government, but they were also to be a people marked by fruitful work and faithful rest. They were to be a people marked by joy, feasts, justice, generosity, purity, and much, much more. There would be no toleration of sin in their community either. And like the instructions to worship, God told them how to do this. They must follow his instructions for eliminating sin. They were to take sin seriously, and their responsibility was to purge the evil from in your midst. By turning to God, they were called to turn from sin. And like the faithful shepherd he is, God would show them how to do this. God showed his people that keeping the law was a means by which they were to image him and remember him. Their going out and their coming in were marked by God's work and word. He was to be central to their love, leadership, and life. And finally, as he gives the law, God's people gives his, he gives his people a choice, bringing us to the subpoint three in our final point, their choice. This book is full of promises, promises of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. God lays a choice before his people, choose him and you will flourish. Choose any other way and you will be cursed. Let's go almost to the end of this book and read in Deuteronomy 28, 9 through 11. Deuteronomy 28, 9 through 11. The Lord will establish you as his holy people as he swore to you. If you obey commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all the people of the earth will see that you bear the Lord's name and they will stand in all of you. The Lord will make you prosper abundantly with offspring, the offspring of your livestock and your lands produced in the land that that the Lord swore to your ancestors to give you. They would be fruitful and multiply in the good land that their Lord is giving them. Should they choose to obey and dwell securely and flourish, but should they disobey, look at verse 20. The Lord will send against you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you do until all are destroyed and quickly perish because of the wickedness of your actions in abandoning me. The consequences of disobedience are further taught. They would plant but not enjoy their produce, 2830. They would be confused, 2828. They would be taken captive and ruled by foreigners, 2836. So like Adam and Eve, God laid a choice before his people. The promise of blessing is similar. Obey, be fruitful and multiply. The consequences are the same. Disobey and die. The ground would be hard to work like it was in Genesis 3. They would be confused and disunified like they were at Babel in Genesis 11. And foreigners would take them captive, surely reminding them of their time in Egypt. Their choice was simple. Choose God and live or choose anything else and die. What would they do? Moses writes, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set you before, before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God, obey him, and remain faithful to him. For he is your life, and he will prolong your days as you live in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The choice seems simple, but here we see another layer to the book of Deuteronomy. Throughout the book, Moses has been pointing out a flaw in his people. He's reminded them that they're stubborn. They've worshipped idols when they should have worshipped God. They've disobeyed. They saw God work mightily but soon forgot him. They saw God provide in abundance in the wilderness but grumbled against him. 
The shortcomings of the people are noted throughout the book. Even when they respond obediently to what God has said, he sees where they fall short. Back in chapter 5, God says, If only they had such a heart to fear me and keep my commands so that they and their children would prosper forever. This is around the time when God has given them the Ten Commandments and the people respond humbly and obediently, but God, God sees their heart. He bears with them, though. He sustains them. And he trusts them the law in spite of their disobedience. He knows it'll be hard for them, and Moses knows it too. He tells them that they will pursue other gods. He tells them that they will fail to remember the Lord. And what reason does he give? Their hearts weren't circumcised. Recall what we read again in Deuteronomy 10. Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I am giving you today for your own good. The heavens indeed, the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord has his heart set on your ancestors and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Though he called them to do it, they were to learn, like in the wilderness, that they were incapable of doing it all on their own. God's heart was set on them, but their hearts were far from him. The law here is set up as a tutor. They were to see the problem was not to do with outward conformity, but in hearts that were dead and cold towards God. But God, the faithful shepherd, again extends a greater promise. Let's read Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 11. When all these things happen to you, the blessing and the curses I have said, set before you, and you come to your senses while you are in the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you set you and your children to return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and all your soul by doing everything I am commanding you today, then he will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if your exiles are in the farthest horizon, he will gather you and bring you back from there. The Lord your God will bring you into the land your ancestors possess, and you will take possession of it. He will cause you to prosper and multiply you more than he did your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all of your heart and all your soul that you will live. God is saying here that the people will fail. But God, in his grace, will bring them back, back to the land that they were to inherit, and he will circumcise their hearts. Deuteronomy is prophetic. It tells when, of what Israel will experience after they come into the land. It tells how they will be drawn away and captured by other nations. But it also tells that they will come back, and God will do another miraculous work, the work of giving them a new heart. How will this happen? Again, Deuteronomy gives us the answer. The people need a mediator. Once they are in the land, God says he'll raise up a prophet like Moses to speak to his people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from amongst your own brothers. This is Moses writing. You must listen to him. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold, him hold them accountable and whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. As the rest of the Old Testament progresses, the question looms over Israel's, Israel's history. Who will be a prophet like Moses? Someone to lead God's people from bondage to freedom. One who will give a new law. A mediator between God and man. Read how the book ends in Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. 
He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord had sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to his officials, and all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of Israel. When will one come who knew God face to face, who performs miraculous signs and speaks with God's authority? This book ends on a note of expectation. God will bring his people back to the land to fulfill his promise to them. He will bring his people back to the land that they may be fruitful and multiply, that the promised seed of woman that we read of in Genesis 3 may come, that the better Moses may come. Many years later, God would bring his people back to the land that he promised that the true prophet, priest, and king may come to circumcise hearts of his people and deliver them into eternal rest. The day to which Israel pointed, of course, we now look back on. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. He succeeded where Moses failed. Jesus knew God face to face, and God spoke from a cloud identifying him as his son. He inaugurated a new covenant. He performed signs like no one else and spoke with authority like no one else. He leads his people through a greater exodus. Moses couldn't even enter the promised land because of his sin. But through his death and resurrection, Jesus leads his people out of sin and death into eternal rest in him. He took on the curse that we deserve that we may have his blessing. He sends his spirit to enable us to worship in spirit and truth. He is the perfect mediator. And as we look back on such great news, we see that our calling as a church is similar to the task of Israel. Ours is the task to remember the work of the Lord and rejoice. Ours is the task to be God's people of worship and rest. He's giving us a new feast in his name, the Lord's Supper. We gather weekly to hear his word. With circumcised hearts, we worship him in spirit and truth. We work to purge evil from amongst us by putting sin to death in our hearts and in our lives. And in our life together, we model to one another the love of Christ. We serve one another. We care for the needy together. We remember the widow and the orphan. We seek to do justice. We do these things that the world may know our God. It's his character that we look to emulate in our going out and in our coming in. Friends, your choice is the same. Will you look to God and live, or will you look away from him and die? Brothers and sisters, our choice is the same. Will we continue to look to God? Will we serve him every day? Will we remember his work and word? Will we trust him? Make no mistake, Israel strayed over time. As crossing the Red Sea drifted further into their past, as their memory of God providing water from a rock or manna from heaven faded, so too would their obedience. As they failed to remember the voice that spoke, for, spoke to them from a cloud, they would forget the Lord's kindness to them. As years would pass, they grew bored and tired. They wanted what's new. They were inclined to hope in what they could see and what they could make. They were captivated by the idols of other nations. They failed to remember the Lord and his mighty acts. They forgot their history. Let this not be true of us. Let's be a people who are mindful of the Lord's work in history and take great care to discern his work today. He's still at work executing his plan. As Moses instructed his people to sing a song that he gave them, let's be a people of singing and remembrance to the work of our Lord. God, as the hymn says, after all, is our help in ages past and our hope for years to come. Our shelter amidst the stormy blast and our eternal home. But above all these things, let's remember our history as the people whom God loves. Let's commit to the pattern he's offered us in Christ. Lives of weekly worship, work, and rest in him. In all we do, let's remember the wonderful works of our God.
Let's remember him and rejoice in his providence and promise. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our praise. Your works are magnificent. You've rescued us from sin and death. You have delivered us from the curse we so justly deserved. You have blessed us abundantly in Christ. You keep your promises. With new hearts you've given us, we love you, God. God, help us. Help us to remember your wonderful works. Help us to be, your praise to be on our lips, for you are worthy. For you have made our hearts glad. In Christ's name we pray, amen.